time. Keep moving. Keep Excuse moving. Excuse me. Excuse me. What's happened? Did you guys take it down? No, sir. It was behaving erratically, walking in circles. Then it went down on its own about an hour ago. Now, please, let's go. Let's go. Keep moving. Come on. Don't stop. Do not stop. Let's go. Thank you. How is it dead all by itself? Rachel, I'm not sure. Keep it through. Hello and welcome back to Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast about the films that time blasted away with its heat rays. I'm Gareth Green and joining me, as always, is my full-time co-host and part-time Martian Manhunter, Andrew Phillips. I just love Katie Holmes. (laughs) Praise be to L. Ron Hubbard. (laughs) Praise indeed. And today we're turning our envious eyes and drawing plans against Steven Spielberg's The War of the Worlds. Will this 2005 sci-fi epic hold up to our scrutiny? Or is it sneezy enough to send this towering tripod crashing back down to Earth? Find out after the trailer. I need you back in four instead of twelve. I got half a career coming in. I can't. You know what your problem is? I can think of a couple of women be happy to tell you. 8.30? We said 8 o'clock. Hello, Dad. Hello, Rachel. We'll be back by 9.30 on Sunday. Bob says you got a report due on Monday. What do you know, right? Everything. Rachel, want to see something cool? He hid right behind our house. Lightning doesn't strike twice. You believe this, Ray? Every single car. Oh, I've never seen that many strikes of lightning in one spot. You hear that? There's something down there, and it's moving. Right, where are you going? What are you doing? Get in, Manny. Get out of this truck. I'm not kidding, right? Get in, Manny, or you're gonna die. When carefree dad Ray and his estranged family are forced into a road trip across America, tempers flare and personalities clash along the ride. Will Ray and his family eventually find middle ground and connect once more? Oh, and will they find a way to evade those huge fuck-off alien war machines? (laughs) Famous little person and enemy of the couch, Tom Cruise, stars in this retelling of L. Ron Hubbard's The War of the Worlds, alongside professional screamer Dakota Fanning and Justin I starred in the Dragon Ball movie Chatwin. But is Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds any good? Well, that's what we're here to find out. So why have we nominated War of the Worlds for consideration on Best Forgotten Movies? Well, although it was something of a hit at the box office, I think it still managed to underwhelm in terms of the public eye, especially considering the subject matter. I mean, War of the Worlds is quite a popular text. I think the main issue, and it's partly due to the circumstances of the film as well, it was a big film when it came out, 
but because it came in quick succession between two other Spielberg films, yeah, I think it kind of got lost in there was oh this is yet another Spielberg film that's come out this year or within the last like yeah twelve months. Even when it came out, I mean, this is something we'll talk about later, but even when it came out, I remember Dakota Fanning and even Spielberg talking about the potential to do a sequel. I don't know where they would take it, considering the way that this film ends, Mm. but there was that potential there, and that talk never resurfaced again. I know Spielberg doesn't really like to make sequels to his own films, because he feels like he slums it. He's too cocky walking into a sequel, I think he recently said in an interview, and that's the reason why... um, so many of his sequels have failed is because uh, he doesn't challenge himself in the same way he does with original films. Yeah, he noticed it when he did Lost World, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he should never have done the film. But it's strange that all talk of a sequel whatsoever, even from the studio, which I imagine would have pushed for it considering how much money this film made, it was just brushed under the carpet and brushed away. And even now, very few people actually talk about this film in any sense, really. Yeah, I think all the controversy surrounding Tom Cruise at the time may have yeah. put the kibosh on that as well. I think we were just looking at his filmography immediately after this film and Mission Impossible 3. It was a bit of a wilderness time for him until, well, for a good four or five years. Yeah, it's actually um, it's become more apparent. I know we've talked about before that we're living in the age of the brand, but that's never more apparent than when you look at Tom Cruise's filmography because his original films made less and less while his brand films like Mission Impossible actually made more. Mm. So you can tell by looking at his career where the age of the star ends. Yeah. Because it's where his original films just stop making money. And then films like Rock of Ages come out and are massive bombs. And I'd say this is probably one of the last films to bear his name above the title singularly as well. Yes. Because we've noticed recently that... And the same's gone the way with Johnny Depp as well. He may still have his name above the title, but it's usually with some other people. Yeah, definitely. And um, I mean, did you watch the... Uh, trailer for war of the worlds that's included in the blu-ray no i didn't that's the only thing i didn't watch they shot it specifically for the film and it contains i mean the original trailer the teaser trailer doesn't actually contain footage from the film and what it is is it's like this uh, small scene of is that the super bowl trailer no no it's even before the super bowl trailer yeah from the year before and what it is is you see a little bit of a like it's american suburbia you see a family walk out into the street after seeing flashes on the horizon Mm. and all the families come out of their homes and they're looking towards the hills in the distance and there's all this explosions going on just beyond the hill Mm. and then all of a sudden suburbia explodes around them and we cut straight to the name cruise and then spielberg and then war of the worlds and it's almost like cruise was as big of a name as the title of the film yeah that was what they were marking it on whereas now even in the mission impossible films he is the lead of an ensemble yeah yeah i think that's why the mission impossible films are still going as well is because they've embraced that ensemble element yeah it stopped being a star vehicle for tom cruise i mean it kind of still is the marketing campaigns are always around what crazy stunt tom cruise is going to be doing in the next one but they don't forget that there are other faces in this film now yeah again we're just talking about johnny depp the same things happened with the new alice in wonderland film if you look at the original well, I'm going to say the original Alice in Wonderland film, but the Tim Burton now is <laughs> yeah. Alice in Wonderland. It's just his singular name above the title. And then yeah. we look at the poster for Through the Looking Glass, it's his name, not even first, actually. It's his name, like, second or third billing yeah. across a long line of other names. Yeah, so I mean, even the, if you um, look at the posters for those films as yeah. well, the original, the origi- oh, there we go, saying the original again, the Tim Burton version, yeah. it's just Johnny Depp's gigantic face 
with his name above it. That was pretty much it in terms yeah. of how the film was marketed. At least with this new one, I've seen a whole variety of different posters in the cinema. Mm. So yeah, it's definitely uh, democratized and uh, decentralized yeah. movie marketing a lot. Things can no longer be a star vehicle. And I think one of the other reasons that we've actually chose War of the Worlds for this week's episode is because, as you know, a couple of weeks ago, Independence Day Resurgence came out. Mm-hmm. which again covers this alien invasion type film but also we've got a spielberg film coming out yeah i think it's either this week or next week with the mm. bfg so it's like the ideal time to do both a film that is an alien invasion film whilst also being a spielberg film hey, it's interesting as well that this film is kind of the antithesis of your independence day type film it's, yeah it's the antithesis of your michael bay slash roland emmerich yeah, style well, of invasion film it absolutely is i mean even in terms of just the way in which it reveals its primary threat is almost the opposite of it's the anti-independence day like yeah. say the antithesis they go in completely the opposite direction yeah both literally and thematically mm. but yeah it's strange that you mentioned that because the history of war of the worlds and independence day are actually closely tied considering that spielberg originally wanted to make this film in the 90s but then independence day came out so he decided yeah. that yeah. it just wasn't the right time so andy before we go any further do you have any experience with steven spielberg's war of the worlds prior to this episode uh no no uh the main reason is i was gonna go and see it at the time and then i think my mum saw it and then she was like it's good but it's not great and yeah. then that kind of just put me off it a little bit and because the cruise brand had been riding high for so long and it was yeah. very uh you kind of get a bit tired of it yeah, and, he was um, inescapable for yeah. a while as well. Yeah, so I was like, "Yeah, I like the idea of a Spielberg War of the Worlds film, but with Tom Cruise in it, I'm just like, Ugh. yeah, could they have found someone else? Could it not have been like made as a star vehicle? Because it's one of those things where it's it, looking back now, and I think they would have marketed the film completely differently, given what the actual film itself is. Yeah, to have it so centralized around Tom Cruise mm-hmm. as an actor." and have his name yeah. and also his face on the poster as well. I think they would have done that completely differently now, like, yeah. obviously, like over 10 years later. I actually think that you watched it at the opportune time because, uh, like I say, Tom Cruise as a brand, as a name, as a star, he was completely and utterly inescapable when this film came out. And for some time, the completely wrong reasons that a studio would have wanted him to be yeah. famous, <laughs> considering the, uh, the rise of Scientology in the public eye. But... I think, yeah, you have seen it at the right time because all that has died down somewhat and Mm. Tom Cruise as a name has diminished somewhat, although he's still very present as an actor and as a popular actor as well. Mm. But um, not so much as he was before. I Mm. think he was the market was oversaturated with Tom Cruise films for a quite a while actually Mm. it would have been hard to watch this film back then with that mindset of oh god it's tom cruise again and i don't think he would have been able to see the performance as well yeah it's it's much easier to see his performance and the strengths of his performance in the film now divorced from his kind of kookiness of the time yeah because he was pretty kooky well probably still is (laughs) he remains pretty kooky but i think he just um hides it better yeah (laughs) so yeah so this is your first go around then which yeah. is strange because, as I, I know you very well, you are quite a Steven Spielberg fan. I think I got a bit of a Spielberg-itis as well. I think the same thing had happened with Spielberg. Because if you notice his filmography, at, when you look at it, he probably made more films in the in the 2000s than he did in the 90s and the 80s. He'd do two films a year and 
uh, it was very much, I think, in a way, he was almost oversaturating the market with his own films yeah. as well. So that was the other reason. I was like, oh, God, we got that. And then we got Munich coming out. Like, how much time? They, obviously, it, they didn't spend that much time on this film, really. So, yeah, I think it was, again, just wedged between two other films that had been out that year. Yeah, the thing is, I admire Steven Spielberg for the way in which he can make films in such a short period of time and the quality of those films as yeah, well. Yeah. But I think that when you start releasing films with such frequency, they become inessential. Yeah. Um, so it, you don't mind actually missing it. You don't mind missing that Steven Spielberg film that's coming out because you know that six months down the line, <laughs> there's going to be another Steven Spielberg film coming out. Yeah, yeah. So it, they become less of an event in themselves which yeah. they, they should always Steven Spielberg film should always be an event mm. so yeah I do have a bit of experience with War of the Worlds I did go to see it when it first came out at the cinema in fact I have and continue to be a huge fan of George Powell's 1953 version of H.G. Wells The War of the Worlds I have to say right now I know that War of the Worlds isn't by L. Ron Hubbard that was a joke <laughs> um, but I've always been a fan of that I saw it when I was a kid it frightened me when I first saw it and it continues to actually scare me now even though it does that like the 1950s hokiness the BBS yeah. qualities are clear to see um, it still actually kind of gets under my skin even now and I have read the book when I was a teenager. I've not read it for a long time, and a lot of mm. it is still like uh, it's missing in my mind. But um, the book, although I do like H.G. Wells, I've also read The Time Machine. I love The Time Machine. I love the film it's, that's based on it as well. I think that's mm. another George Powell one as well. Yep. Um, I've got the poster just right next to your straight face. Right next to me. Yeah, there yeah. it is. <laughs> and I love The Time Machine as well. But the book isn't where my love of war of the worlds as a property and, and as a name yeah. comes from it's from that george powell 1953 film although it wasn't actually directed by george powell i think it was directed by brian or oh, brian something or other brian director yeah brian director who was probably just a stand-in for george powell at the time yeah yeah that's where my love of war of the worlds comes from uh, when spielberg announced in 2004 i think it was early 2004 or mid 2004 that they were mm. making a film i just about flipped out yeah and then a trailer came out shortly afterwards and spielberg talked about it being uh, about the tripods finally we were going to see the tripods realized on the screen it was a very exciting time so as soon as it came out first day i was there with a lot of my friends and i was still kind of astounded by how much they pulled the rug from out from under me because it was not the film that i was expecting it to be even though i'd followed the marketing campaign quite closely in fact, one of the things I actually admired about the marketing campaign is much like Jurassic Park, in which they kept the T-Rex from the public eye. Nobody quite knew what it was going to look like yeah. and what they were in for. They kept the tripods from the public eye. Mm. And so in the trailers, you only really got to see a glimpse of it, maybe a leg here, you know, um, a little bit of its eye, maybe some steam coming off its body. And that's about all we saw of it. And a lot of the fun was in just trying to piece together those images to see if you could make something that would vaguely resemble what the tripods would look yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. So that was a lot of the fun coming into this film. So yeah, I, I did see it when it first came out. And uh, I guess we're going to talk about later about what I thought of it. Yeah, because I think most of my experience of War of the Worlds prior to this will be from the uh, the musical version. Oh, of uh, course. The Jeff yeah. Wayne musical version. Yeah. I had the album on uh, on LP. And it came with the the nice book, yeah, with all the illustrations in. So that's my general experience with it, with the album, and then obviously looking at the artwork. Yeah, every single piece of artwork in that is ingrained in my mind, and it made it very scary mm -hmm. for me. Like just the whole effect of it, 
Yeah. And uh, just even the sound that they created for the for the aliens the in that Ula. one is, is, is still fucking yeah. creepy. As, in fact, I'd say that's probably still creepier than the noise they created yeah. for this film, actually. I still think the Ula is probably the... It's probably mm-hmm. one of the creepiest sounds ever made by a human, yeah, to be yeah. honest. And it's also, like, it has that ending on the record, which is very disconcerting. Mm-hmm. The whole, you know, the NASA, the, the whole end of the thing where it just cuts off. That's oh, quite, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and obviously, you've got, you've got the Burton factor mm-hmm. as well. Of course. So, yeah, yeah. I do. Uh, yeah, that does stick in my mind a lot. So, it's something like that was my sort of comparison. Yeah, I mean, I I have listened to the Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds uh, version. I I, I kind of grew up with it because my dad had it on CD as well. Yeah, yeah. But I haven't listened to it in years, in yeah. fact. So it's something I should be revisiting at some point. And I've not seen the stage show either. No. But um, yeah, I, I am familiar with a couple of the key songs from Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. I've always liked it mm. quite a lot. And yeah, like you say, Richard Burton's voice is, uh, well, it's become iconic as part of that. So, an advert from Best Forgotten Movies here, just a little appeal and to keep our fans updated. Oh, wow, first. Yeah. To help us continue to keep the lights on at Best Forgotten Movies HQ, we're launching a new series of movie commentaries under the name The Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Currently, we have recorded commentaries for Spectre and Alien Resurrection with more to come. This content will be available to any of our fans that donate to our Patreon account found in this podcast description and on our Twitter and Facebook pages. So, now back to the show. So, everyone who listens to Best Forgotten Movies knows that before we start to talk about the films themselves, we like to provide just a little bit of history. You know, we like to set the scene for when this film came out and the history that informed this film. So, where do we begin with Steven Spielberg's The War of the Worlds? Well, I think we have to actually begin with the book on which it is based, which is uh, quite a far way back. It's a good hundred years back. So H.G. Wells originally released the book as a serialized novel in Pearson's magazine when it was eventually released as a hardcover in 1898. <laughs> and H.G. Wells was a scientist, I think they mentioned in a documentary yeah. on the Blu-ray that it was, in fact, was it? It, wasn't it was a, a zoologist. zoologist yeah. yeah. And often he infused the science into his stories. Mm-hmm. And that's why, in fact, they've become somewhat timeless as well. Yeah. It's because he was ahead of the time. Yeah. And War of the Worlds is no exception, as it speaks about technology destruction and, most importantly, the importance of preserving the natural world, as that is eventually the thing that becomes the tripod's downfall. That usually cautionary tales about messing with things that you shouldn't be messing with, i.e. things like time or um, splicing species together, obviously, like uh, with Island Drop Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then obviously the, the aliens in War of the Worlds. The aliens in War of the Worlds are essentially the... They are the mad scientists of the film, really. Yeah. Who bring about their own downfall, which I, I quite like. I quite like that it's almost like divorcing itself from that. Normally, as we know from ni- films of 1950s, it's normally the mad scientists themselves that bring about the destruction of the world. Mm. Whereas in this, the aliens are kind of take on that role. Yeah. And we can't really go further without mentioning the Orson Welles radio play that came out in 1938. Yeah. Which has become infamous in and of itself for being quite controversial at the time. I mean, why was that? Well, the idea is that it's meant to be that they break into a news station yeah. to broadcast this invasion. But a lot of people missed the intro where it obviously explained that it was a dramatization. So people took it as a real thing. Yeah. And... um 
and there was mass hysteria at the time when it was being broadcast and people genuinely thought that we were being invaded by aliens. <laughs> um, it was that convincing. Yeah, apparently H.G. Wells was very critical of Orson Welles for being that irresponsible. Although apparently when they did eventually meet, they got on very, very well. I imagine it would. Wells I don't know why, Wells. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's interesting as well, because on the documentary of the Spielberg War of the Worlds, through that part of the documentary, it's narrated by the grandson of H.G. Yeah. Wells and... The great-grandson. And, yeah, the great-grandson, the director Simon Wells. And uh, <laughs> I find it absolutely hilarious how much you can fuck up your great-grandfather's story in film Yeah, with the time machine. The, yeah, the time machine. I mean, I think it was actually um, taken out of his hands somewhat, because it's, it's strange to think about, actually, that... We're about to be talking about this event quite significantly as we go on, but one of the things that happened that kind of had a very negative effect on the time machine was, in fact, 9-11. Yeah. And they had to reshoot a large chunk of the film or retool it completely Mm. because of 9-11. And I don't think that film was destined to be good (laughs) anyway because even the things that are divorced from that 9-11 impact are still not great. No. But yeah, um, as we go on, we're actually going to be talking about that event more often. Yeah, I mean, this film wouldn't even exist in its current form without being informed by that incident. So I don't even think Spielberg would have made the film if that wouldn't have happened. Yeah, because like you say, I know in the 90s they tried to make a War of the Worlds film, but I think it would have been profoundly different. Yeah. And perhaps it would have been more along the lines of Independence Day in terms of it being a lot more fun. Mm. and adventure in its tone. Yeah. Um, especially following the likes of Jurassic Park. Yeah. More Jurassic Parky in tone, more of that kind of Spielberg sentimentality that everybody's so used to. And so finally, yeah, 1953, we have the George Pal version that came out. One of the striking differences between this film and Steven Spielberg's film is that George Pal's version features flying saucers rather than tripods yeah. because the technology wasn't there at the time to realize mm. H.G. Wells' mechanical monster. Yeah, But even then, those flying saucers have become iconic in their own right. Absolutely. So. We know that War of the Worlds has been a massive influence on the likes of Brad Bird, who is in The Iron Giant actually plays on the design of the flying saucers in War of the Worlds. I yeah. think he even uses sound effects as well. When, <laughs> once the uh, Iron Giant turns into a war machine. Yeah. Which is really quite cool, and we, you can hear it every now and again. You, you see like a design that almost feels a little bit War of the Worldsy. Like I say, my first experience with this name, War of the Worlds, was with that film, and I was actually quite shocked that when I read the book, it, it was tripods, and uh, I've always been interested in seeing what that would be, mm. how that would be realised in film, and I think I'm, I wonder why it's taken this long mm. for them to make another film, really. I still think, even following Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds, that we are still waiting for the definitive version of H.C. Wells' story. And I mean something that takes it even back to the time period. Yeah. And makes a more period-appropriate version of the story. Mm. And I do wonder at some point whether or not we will get to see that. Mm. Because, again, this is the type of property where decades pass between adaptations, really. The issue I had with the film, and I think that's... Maybe what I think is missing from it is there's two things. I think the environments that they pass through aren't distinctive enough for me. Like I think they're quite bland. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, yeah, the difference in technology. I mean, there is a difference between the technology of what we have and what they have, but it wouldn't have been as distinct if you'd say set it as a period piece where they literally had nothing. 
Yeah. No real weapons at all, apart from a couple of cannons here and there. And we would have felt that the odds would have been stacked up much higher. Mm -hmm. It would have been more colourful, I think, to have done it as a period piece than sending it, especially sending it in contemporary New Jersey. Yeah, as yeah. well. I think that's the only thing for me that make yeah it does make the film blander than it should be because I know it's trying to portray this realistic on the ground suburban American setting, but I'm not sure they could have found a more exciting I mean, location. I think I think that's part of it though. I think yeah. that the blandness is part of the film's identity in terms of who and what it's trying to portray yeah. and what its intentions are. Because I know that David Co-op did say that one of the things that he wanted to avoid with this film was the kind of the big cities that are often iconically destroyed in so many other films um, yeah, hailing yeah. Far, as far back as like the 1950s. Yeah. I think he even said he wanted to give Manhattan a chance to breathe. Yeah. Uh, no, I didn't I don't think I mean it like that. I didn't want it in like a big city. I just meant in terms of the general landscape. Yeah. I just thought they could have found somewhere that was a bit more exciting. Yeah. And just a little bit more distinctive somewhere like the Rockies or something mm-hmm. just something a bit more spectacular really than just... but again I mean I, I think that's part of it I think they're trying to say that they want this to be anywhere in America yeah. they want it to feel like it could be anywhere and yeah, I, I, yeah. there's always going to be a t- uh, it, like once you make it distinctive people start to think of it in terms of well at least I'm not there I think they're trying to say well even though places are named in it yeah they're they're still trying to say that this could be anywhere in america this is and that's why you you get there's so much of the film that just takes place in random open countryside Mm. because again that could be anywhere in the midwest that could be anywhere and it could be even california as Mm. we find out a lot of it is actually filmed in california but i do understand what you're saying visually then it makes for something that isn't as striking as it could be but i do understand the intention behind it as well I know that Spielberg's not sort of that gung-ho American anyway, but it's no. more about saying this is... Because even down to like the, having the refugee look and they were talking about how everything would be brighter colours and yeah. more disposable. And I like that aspect of it, but I still feel like, uh, especially in this time, I think it's changed a bit now. I think, again, this is another part of decentralising things. I feel like films like this have gone a little bit more global since yeah i still feel like invasion films especially back in the 90s and and 2000s were very very much centered on america oh yeah and nowhere else i think even in independence day yeah uh, which is a film about a global event yeah we only ever see it through the eyes of the president of the united states of america yeah i mean that's that's how focused the film is on america and i think the most that we do get to see about the rest of the world is like random cutaways to little teams and resistances are and it's i think that kind of set the template for a while of what these films even if this event was a global we'd only ever see it through american eyes yeah yeah and i think even though they had this list of cliches that they didn't want to include i think even that aspect has now become very much cliche yeah and it's very much kind of like why is it just there there's a film i kind of compared positively against world war z yes because that's a very bland film but at least it has different environs that it explores. Mm-hmm. It, it obviously starts off in America, but then it ends in in Wales for some weird reason. But <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> even so, it, yeah, you, you're going via the Middle East. Yeah, it's definitely got a more global scale. And even it. in its original cut of the film, because as we know yeah. about World War Z, they had to reshoot the last act in its yeah. entirety. But even in its original cut, it still ended in Russia. And obviously, intentionally in this film, because it's an on-the-ground depiction of it, it, it does feel a lot smaller yeah. than that. I mean, you do get the idea of it being a much bigger 
out there. Mm-hmm. But you obviously, you, you is a, a very small character piece at the end of the day. The thing is, though, you cannot make this film without it being in America, considering what event that it is oh, playing yeah. off yeah. in its entirety. I mean, 9-11 is part of this film's identity. Mm. And I think that to make this film too divorced away from New York, too yeah. divorced away from those that would have been affected by what happened there, mm. would be to kind of lose that meaning and considering just how 9-11 came to inform pretty much every aspect of this film in terms of its story Mm. and terms of how the characters react to this event it's one of those few films where i have no other reason but to give it a pass because unlike the likes of independence day which have no reason for it to be so focused on america specifically this has that reason this has that meaning this has that depth Whereas so many other films don't have that excuse. They're just doing it because, well, this is who our audience are. Mm. And now as the audiences have kind of grew, films these days are completely and utterly global. Something can flop in America that is a massive success in the rest of the world. That global films have become more acceptable and it's become more acceptable to set films in other places. Yeah. And I think the real positive thing that you can get out of this film is how much restraint is at play in terms of the destruction because there's been a lot of films mainly made by Michael Bay and Zack Snyder, which are full-on destruction porn. Yes. These filmmakers address that 9-11 issue, but in uh, completely the wrong way. In completely superficial yeah. ways as well. In a rather offensive way, actually. Yeah, as well. it shows an, um, an incredible amount of disrespect, really. Yeah. For everybody, not yeah. even just American, just, just generally people. But we were talking about these today, like how much smarter a filmmaker Spielberg is compared yeah. to the, like those two guys, especially. And the fact that, like we said, with Batman versus Superman, he tries to address the faults of Man of Steel, but in, in turn actually makes it worse. Yeah, he does. Because uh, he doesn't understand why people don't like what yeah. he's doing. Yeah. He just really doesn't get it. But yeah, the amount of restraint and yeah, small scaledness in this film is really good. And yeah, it was definitely something that surprised me. Mm-hmm. when I watched it, because I was expecting something much bigger. But then, yeah, you, when you do get down to it, it is a very small film. Mm-hmm. Very focused. It's almost like a tunnel vision look at mm-hmm. an invasion film. But at the same time, I think that's why people were maybe disappointed by it as well. I absolutely agree, yeah. Especially at the end as well, because I feel like movies like Independence Day and things like Godzilla as well, like those Roland Emmerich films, had really set people up for that expectation of having a real gung-ho, fuck-yeah moment at the end. Yeah. And there is none at the end of this film. It's very small, and, and obviously it has the ending that the book has, which is a really good ending. Yeah. Uh, but it's not a. It's a very anticlimactic ending. It is. It's an incredibly anticlimactic ending. The thing is, the genius of the book is its ending, but... I don't think a film has managed to uh, translate that into an exciting end to a film. Yeah. Even George Powell version ends kind of anticlimactic because the humans are so helpless and so divorced from what actually happens to these aliens, what ends up being their downfall, that in both versions, the film ends out of the blue, really. Mm. It's just the tripods are there one minute and then they're not. They're a threat one second and then they're not. And that's, yeah. that's exactly what happens in the book. It's like the, the very thing that people overlook most. The very th- and, and something that people continue to try to get rid of, you know, <laughs> mm. the common cold, is their, um, their downfall. And I think, again, that's always going to make for a kind of anticlimactic ending, whereas what people want to see is the big spaceship blow up. You know what um, they could have done to have combated that, though, would have been a 
a gradual decline rather than yes, yeah, I reckon um, so. Just oh, because even in this film, you get you get the set piece in the cage, and then you fast forward like twelve hours, mm-hmm. and then oh, they're all malfunctioning and everything's dying. Yeah, it is very sudden. It is the structure of the film. Like if you're looking at a traditional three act structure, it's kind of the third act is very short. I, at the end of the day, I still like the way that it is. In a way, I do, and I love the I love some of the imagery. Yeah, that they they create at the end of the film, especially when you got that the first image of that tripod collapsed on that building. Uh, against the building. Yeah, yeah it's a fantastic really image. Yeah, that's probably my favorite image of the alien when it sort of plops out of the of the ship at the end. Yeah, and gives its last gasp. That is a direct reference to the very end of George Powell's version. Yeah, that, it ends with a ship crashing in the middle of the street, much the same. Its mm. door opens and a hand grasps through the doorway and yeah. then falls limp. And that's the last we see of the aliens. And that's it. It's this plays on that image really quite mm. fantastically. Mm. Although this does bear very little resemblance to George Powell's version, there are a couple of really strong nods to that film, mm. including in the casting, because we do get the two leads from War of the Worlds making an appearance, and that's Anne Robinson and Gene Barry. They yeah. appear at the very end of the film as uh, the grandparents. As the grandparents, just as a little nod to the camera, yeah. really. But just to continue with uh, setting the history of this film, yeah, I have a yeah. couple of other tidbits to explore before we actually start getting into the film, which I know it's hard It's hard to hold back sometimes. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so this film came about in 2004 when Spielberg met with Tom Cruise, or, well, Tom Cruise met with Spielberg, I should say, yeah. on the set of whatever Spielberg was working on at the time. And what, 2004? Was it 2004? 2003? I thought it was when they were doing... Um Catch me if you can. Oh, it was. Sorry. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was very, very shortly after Minority Report. Oh, okay. Because they were like, oh, we really enjoyed doing that. What can we do next? Ah, right. Got you. So it was on Catch Me If I'm You sure Can. I'm sure it was that. Yeah, because that, that's a film he made directly after yeah. Minority Report. That's like another film in a row. It is, did. yeah. He did a yeah. lot. He made almost twice as many films in the 2000s as he did in the 80s. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And he, he does it in such a way in which he does two films that are completely different as well. Yeah, yeah. Which um, I guess probably helps his case a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. He's not just turning out the same film time after time after time. No, I don't, he's never really made the same film twice. No, no, not really. Uh, but yeah, they did meet during the filming of Catch Me If You Can and Spielberg pitched three ideas, the last of which was War of the Worlds. Mm. And at that time, I think it was just a name that they had. Yeah. And he said, I-, I want to do this. And that was the one that Tom Cruise jumped at. He said, that's what we have to definitely do. And we have to start it like now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so they went straight ahead and jumped head first, really, into making War of the Worlds. Yeah. Uh, and I think it was a case of they had to push back both projects that they were Yeah, because Spielberg was in. working on Munich yeah. at the time, and I think Tom Cruise was about to start on Mission Impossible 3. Yeah, and they both got pushed back to yeah. allow for this to film. To accommodate for the, time, yeah. for the shooting period it would take yeah. to film War of the Worlds. And they're talking about the shooting of this film, actually. It only shot for 72 days, yeah. which is a remarkably short time for what is a huge film, and I think they actually made it in like nine months. And... Um, during the making of it, they had like deadlines that they had to meet. Yeah. Just to, to give an example, the whole explosion of the motorway or the freeway in the film was actually conceived, shot, and finished within a month so that it could be used for the Super Bowl trailer, mm. which yeah. is just crazy to think about. Mm. Uh, it's one of those films where you could have only have made it 
with this type of director and this type of crew because you've got people that have been working together for a long, long time on different projects of, of varying degrees. Yeah. So you've got that situation where everyone's everyone knows what everyone else is going to do and everyone can anticipate. Yeah. So there, there was a, a level of planning involved uh, where things would slot. It's like like putting together a very complicated jigsaw piece so we can be like, we need to do this because this takes this long. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a lots of um, things where they shot first in the East Coast and then they had to replicate things on the West Coast just because they had to do it in that way to get the the post production under the way of that also wouldn't have been ready for the for the actual release date. Yeah. And I think that's part of the reason why we do get these tonal shifts in the film especially towards the end where like we were talking about with the tripods is they're very healthy one minute and the next minute they're not. That's perhaps something that another filmmaker with more time would say, okay, let's go back and reshoot this mm. the, these parts so we can show a steady decline. With this film they don't have that option really because it's all eyes forward they've just got to be moving forward towards that yeah, deadline yeah. on the one hand yeah it does give it a certain energy yeah I'd say um, it's definitely intense the other hand yeah it, it does have that kind of thing that I can't quite put my finger on but it doesn't feel quite finished uh, yeah. and I'm not sure it's just because I know that it was done quickly mm-hmm. because they've not had time to, to really stop and think about things it's like oh I can't quite get my finger on what's not there about it there's something yeah. that stops it from being a really great film Okay. Yeah. No. I, I don't know what. I yeah. Don't know, yeah. No. I. I do get you because there is a certain uh, roughness about the film. I mean, when we actually start talking about the filmmaking, there are a few shots as well that do strike us as being like, well, the best of a bad situation at the time. Yeah. Yeah. But you do get a feeling that another filmmaker with more time would have gone back to key scenes and perhaps given them another another go around. Mm. Whereas this is just. I mean, again, it's it's one of those things where. The thing that makes it unique is also the thing that is its downfall in a way because it does have a blistering pace and Mm. an intensity as a result of this because you do get the feeling that it was an intense shoot for everybody involved and that translates in the film itself Mm. as well and that's what you want. Um, So that's like that roughness, although it lends it its identity, also holds it back slightly as well. Yeah, at the same time I do like the roughness but yeah, there are a couple of things in it that are just like that are just quite jarring especially yeah. at the beginning like i was texting you in the first 10 minutes because uh yeah i'm not the mass i'm not the biggest fan of uh janus kaminsky as a as a dop anyway i don't i'm not i love his work in schindler's list yeah and a couple and of other saving films private ryan yeah. as well although i'd still say i'd prefer the cinematography in band of brothers to saving private ryan anyway yeah um, but i'd say that you wouldn't they, have band of brothers yeah. without saving private ryan but, um, in terms of the work that he achieved yeah but yeah he's definitely he's definitely not my he's not in he's not in my top five no um i feel like spielberg really should start working with someone else I, i'm ready point. for somebody else to start yeah. working with steven spielberg uh, because i feel like i always um have to like squint to look at the image i feel like it's always too bright when you look at a janus kaminsky film um it's, it's always overlit and he has a way of making even natural environments feel artificial yeah which is um like it's often jarring <laughs> yeah it is I mean, we see that in the opening of the first 10 minutes of Indiana Jones as well. Yeah. Oh, and we see later as well, although there's a lot of post-production that went into that film that helped that also. But mm. he does he does have a way of capturing natural light and just making it feel like an overlit studio. Yeah, like, even like Ridge of Spies, where yeah. it should really feel more 
grounded and down mm-hmm. to earth has a, a slight artificiality about it i'm fed up of not being able to see the world outside of a window yeah i think that's part of the problem is that anytime there's a window or anything it's just blown a, out uh, yeah it's a mm. it's a blown out blanket of light and it's glaring yeah and that's why i feel like glowing. i do have to squint all the time yeah because i just feel like even though spielberg does a different kind of film mm-hmm. because he works with pretty much the same people especially in key positions like you apart from obviously bridge of spies you always get john williams doing the score uh, and i love john williams but sometimes i kind of wish oh and in fact it was quite nice to not have yeah. john williams do the score for bridge of spies because it was just something a little bit different mm-hmm. and um and obviously you got michael khan doing the editing yeah so you get the same kind of pace and then you, you get Yunus kaminsky so even even though it's a completely different film it, it kind of looks the same yeah and i feel like needs to break those ties sometimes because i know when you do a spielberg film it's a little bit like doing a family and mm-hmm. they describe it as being like a family but sometimes i do feel like you can come back to these people but sometimes you need to just stretch out there and 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 meet new people and, and have new ways of doing things and i think that's part of the problem with making films on a conveyor belt type production is that, like you say, you build a family and you often work with those people through ease with that yeah, family yeah. rather than through talent. And I guess that Janusz Kaminski is somebody that can achieve what Spielberg wants rather easily, whereas what he needs right now, in my opinion, is somebody that's going to challenge him visually yeah. as well. And um, I, I'm just ready to see something that looks different from Spielberg as well. And that's not to say I don't think that Janusz Kaminski is a bad cinematographer. No. I just I'm tired with that look particular look right now yeah i'm ready for something different i think what he achieves in war of the worlds is fine bar a few shots that really look like they're unfinished and really overblown yeah in terms of the um the exposure saving private ryan i i love and schindler's list as well mm. but yeah i'm just ready for a change now yeah especially for indiana jones yeah like i think I, that was the straw that broke the camel's back when it yeah. came to janos kaminsky for me i'd love to see uh someone else tackle that yeah, and, and try and get a bit more closer to the Douglas Slocum look. The shots in War of the Worlds, especially at the beginning, where you get this unnatural glow and things are, like it feels like um, he's stuck Vaseline over the lens. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, and you get that weird glow. It's almost a bit like J.J. Um, Abrams lens flare. You get the Janusz Kaminski yeah. Vaseline effect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there there is that shot of Ray's ex-wife and her new husband stood mm. on the sidewalk when all you can see behind them even though they're outside in a new jersey street all that you can see behind them is white yeah because the, it's just been it's so overexposed which again i think is actually a result of the film being somewhat rushed and them having to film during not quite optimal weather conditions because yeah. i think part of the reason there is that the area was so wet and it was raining when they were yeah. filming so there's a lot more glare and added that to Janusz Kaminski's usual yeah. kind of... It's just made for a completely unacceptable image, really. We're not talking uh, Michael Cimino here, are we? In terms <laughs> of like, it has to be this hour, <laughs> this minute that we shoot this shot. I suppose it's more like a TV schedule Yes, with this one. Because of the accelerated schedule, they've had to go, right, this is the weather we've got. We're going to have to we run have with to it. We have to do it. Yeah. Well, it's time for us to actually um, leave our talk of Janos Kaminski behind, which we should have <laughs> actually been doing later on in the episode. Yeah, but yeah. let's actually start talking about the film itself. Let's start talking about the story. Let's start talking about the characters and talk about what we liked and did not like about mm-hmm. War of the Worlds, as if we have not been doing so far. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I have to ask you straight up. Normally, I ask for a brief overview at this point. Is uh, What did you think of War of the Worlds? 
I really quite liked it. I said there's still that thing that I can't quite put my finger on why it's not like it's probably more of a, a three and a half, four out of five rather than yeah. getting four marks. But uh, no, I really enjoyed it and it was quite nice to see such a small film come out of something that could potentially have been so big. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I liked the seriousness of it because, yeah, it was very quite refreshing. And uh, yeah, it was nice seeing Tom Cruise not playing Tom Cruise. Yeah. Uh, as I think well. that's a big part of what helps this film succeed, in my opinion. Yeah. As we'll talk about in the performances as well, is they use Tom Cruise's shitty and grin against him. Yeah, which um, and and that persona that he's so known for as the uh, the cocky kid. Yeah, and I think David Corp actually said in the making of documentary that he wanted to take a Tom Cruise character from the eighties or early nineties and then say, well, what's that character going to be doing in twenty years' time if things didn't work out? Yeah, yeah. And Ray is that character and yeah. it works really well. It does feel like it's a role that has been written for Tom Cruise mm. but also feels completely against type for him. He does get to do that shit eating grin and stuff like that but it's for a completely different reason and it <laughs> means a completely different thing. It's not f- to make us like him, it's to make us dislike him. I like the relationships with the kids and I like how yeah, he doesn't try and even though you connect with the characters, it doesn't try and make you like them. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Like, Oh, yeah, yeah. It's kind of very un-Hollywood in that respect. They take that risk and go, right, these characters are a bit more real than yeah, well, that's you usually... It. It's, it's chasing an authenticity Yeah, that so many big films often just leave behind and say, oh, well, that's boring. We're not going to do that. It's boring to watch how real people are in real life. Mm. So let's do something more grand kind of thing, yeah. more archetypal. Whereas these characters are a lot more real. I mean, Dakota Fanon's character... Her whole thing is pretty much screaming throughout the entire film, as anybody would in that situation, as a child of that age would. She has no comprehension of what's actually happening, and she's terrified for her life. Mm. And I like like that. I think she's actually really good in this film, although she's grated against a lot of people, I think, uh, looking at a few of the comments on this film. I get what that character is supposed to represent, and I think it's played perfectly. The word of choice for this film that they were using when making it was uh, the term hyperreal. Yeah. And they really do tap into that, where they have these characters with the flaws. And like we were saying before, it's a very small film, whereas most films like this are very grand, and they neglect the characters. This film focuses on the characters. It doesn't neglect the grand spectacle, but it's it's much of a lesser component in the film. Yeah. I'd say the spectacle is is more dressing in this film yeah. than anything. And in fact, the tripods themselves actually play into the film for a very short runtime. Oh, yeah. yeah. I would say that we perhaps only get to see 10 minutes of tripods on screen. And the rest is people. The film yeah. is about people. And I think, yeah, partly, I think that's another thing where I think the rush schedule for this film probably helped them because if they'd had a longer schedule, they may have had more time to show more things. Yeah. Uh, and it's the same situation as when um, they had the issues with the shark in Jaws and they didn't show it so much because they had the time constraints here to say we can only do this, this and this. That helped them as well because they didn't overexpose yeah. those elements. They became like the event pieces. And I did like it that they did a lot of... Um, and Spielberg's known for this anyway, but there's a, there's a, a real use of old school filmmaking techniques which work better than any of the shit cgi bollocks that we get yeah. now where it's all done with sound and light and what your imagination is uh, creating yeah uh, for the landscape outside like there's the swathes of 
you could almost call it basement the movie yeah because uh, there's a lot of things where you can't see outside yeah and they keep it very closed in there's there's two main points in the film where they are in basements i would say that spielberg is the type of filmmaker that feeds imagination yeah he doesn't provide you with everything all of the time there are films that i would say that are overindulgent for spielberg films but i think specifically talking about this film he feeds your imagination and he shows you just enough and then lets you get to work with the rest of it and yeah, I, yeah. I i think one of the things i like talking about the story as well is that in other films we would have all the answers he would provide us with all of the answers to any of our questions that we even have about the aliens themselves why they're here what they're here to achieve how they got here when they got here etc 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 like so many invasion films do you always have that one character that just knows everything yeah because he's tapped into whatever it is that the threat is in this film we don't get to see that because it's a film told through tunnel vision and because it's focused through these characters we as an audience are left as being just as confused as they are and Mm we have the same questions that they have. It doesn't have that mad scientist character that's going to jump in at any moment and give you all of the exposition. By the time the film ends, we still have the same questions. When did they get here? Why if they come from the ground, etc. When we look at these events, if we if we look at the film as being a parallel for 9-11, I mean, that is exactly what the film is. And we look at the people that were on the street at the time, nobody had any answers to why that was happening or who was behind it or anything like that until weeks after the event, when the event itself was deconstructed and um, everything was examined. It took weeks, it took months for the picture to finally come together. Much like those characters in this film, we are on the street and we have no idea Mm. why any of this has happened. It's going to be months, perhaps years before they find out. And I like that about this film. I like how focused it is in that way. But I think that's also, again, it's it works to its detriment because that's also one of the reasons that many people came down rather harshly on this film is because they were left with questions and it, because it leaves holes in the plot rather quite purposefully. And I think it's because people have got so used to cinema spoon feeding yeah and it still happens now cinema spoon feeds and gives you everything and leaves you with nothing yeah at the end of the day because for example the battle over the hillside people wanted to see that yeah i don't care i can imagine that battle in my head and it's probably far more exciting what they could ever achieve on screen yeah and that's the whole point and the spielberg wants you to imagine what's on the other side of that hill yeah and it's not because they're being cheap and not showing you it's the whole point that the characters themselves well there is one character who's representing that type of audience that wants to see it but the other characters they need to get away from it yeah they don't want to see that yeah Uh, and we don't want that destruction porn exactly and i love that that decision as well to show or not show us what is over that hill it's not just an empty decision to say oh well i'm not going to show you over that hill because that's for your imagination to work out it's actually a character decision it's a Mm. it's a it's a decision that works on a character level Mm. because um we are in ray's head throughout the entirety of the film the film is being shown through ray's eyes and I think uh, one of the things that we mentioned as well, this being a kind of 9-11 parallel, is all these characters represent somebody... Well, they represent the American family and the kind of American ideal and just the average American, I guess. And so many people in the wake of 9-11 went to war because they were angry. And that is what who Robbie represents. He is the angry American kid yeah. that saw something he doesn't understand, that saw something tragic happen that he didn't quite understand, that made him angry. And so he wants to go over that hill to fight yeah to fight whatever it is on the other side ray doesn't 
Ray's mm. the dad. Ray wants to take his family away from that terrible, tragic thing and hide them until it all blows over, like so many would. And I love that it works on that level. And again, it does. It fuels the imagination, not seeing what's happening over that hill. But again, it just works so profoundly on that character level. Yeah, and the the great thing that I think it does that's probably the best thing in the whole film that it doesn't treat any of these characters as being in any way heroic or in kind of Hollywood mock heroic. No. And no one's particularly completely 100% right about mm-hmm. their views. And, um, yeah, it doesn't treat them entirely positively either way. No. I mean, they say it does fall down at the end of the film when, yes. when you do get that whole slightly Spielbergian moment, which I think they could have, they should have really stuck to the guns a little bit more mm-hmm. on there. But, like, um, yeah, when Robbie goes over the hill, I mean, he's been a bit of a dick throughout the rest of the film anyway. Yeah, because one of the things that we are told is that by going to war, essentially, he's abandoning his family that need him mm. as well. And and he's he's fighting for something that he doesn't quite understand. Yeah. He's just angry. And, yeah, you're right, that makes him a dick. <laughs> yeah. And um, Rain, when he protects his family, is is could be seen as being a little bit cowardly, but he's compelled to protect his family when he may have failed in the past. And I think they even talk about this on set as well when they get to that moment. The moment that he allows himself to be taken by the aliens is the moment where he's he's lost everything mm-hmm. and he's got nothing else to lose. So he gets taken in order to actually pursue Rachel, who's yeah. already been taken by the tripod. So it's not as if he's doing anything completely heroic. It's what anybody would do at that time. There's nothing false about it. No. Uh, and I think that's the greatest virtue of the film, that, that it does treat it in a very realistic way and, and doesn't try and um, dress it up. I mean, I'd love to know what the box office figures are for this film compared to domestic versus international, because yeah. I feel that's something that may have, especially in terms of Americans watching this film, that may have irked some people Yeah, because it treated it so realistically of what people actually do because sometimes people don't want to see what real people do no no they uh, want that imagined heroic because at the end of the day when you're watching a tom cruise film you expect tom cruise to be the hero and the fact that he isn't and we had the same thing with edges tomorrow as Mm -hmm. well where he doesn't play the hero people reacted quite negatively yeah and i think uh like we say one of the things that i think audiences react badly to as well and you are right is playing it so real in fact that like you say, embraces those negative aspects of the character, but also it doesn't allow you to escape from the, um, well, kind of the darkness of the situation as yeah. well. And like you said earlier, you mentioned as well, it's a quite a joyless film and purposefully so. And I, I, I think that's part, that's one of its virtues is um, a lot of people, myself included, went into this film expecting Jurassic Park in terms of a film about wonder and joy, whilst also being kind of scary as well at the same time. And yeah, with a darkness to it. But instead, the rug was pulled from under us, and we got something that was altogether more real, and far more downbeat than we than I, I ever expected. Mm. And I think that works in its favour for me. But yeah, it's worked against it for so many people, because one thing that people go to the cinema for, and continue to go to the cinema for, is to escape. Yeah. And so I think War of the Worlds, in my opinion, hits the nail so hard and so rightly in terms of being that parallel to 9-11, that 
actually it probably hits it just too hard. For many people, it was too much like that. I think also as well, dealing with a, what I think is your favourite sequence as well, that it not even just on those characters, because yeah, for the most part, it, it is a three-hander. Just generally with the people that are around them, it, yeah, it treats certain aspects showing like positive aspects of humans. And then at other times, it, it focuses on uh, the real negatives and yeah. what we are capable of and how dangerous we can be as a species when something like this can happen. Yeah. And um, obviously, yeah, we're talking about the whole, um, well, the Athens sequence. Yeah. That whole set piece around the car and then going to the ferry. Well, that actually came about because, um, I, well, I read that David Corp actually heard Steven Spielberg talking to one of the production crew that he thought <laughs> these kind of tragic events like terrorism actually bring people together, like people will band together and do what's right. And so David Corp heard him saying that and thought, well, I'll show you another side to that coin. Yeah. And that's when he purposely went away and wrote the mm. scene in which the car is taken from Ray and his family. And that is one of my favorite scenes in the film because, like I say, the tripods themselves are actually in the film a very short amount of time. And instead, the film deals with what those tripods do to us. The film is about what terrorism does to us as people and how mm. it affects us. The tripod's presence, although they're not on screen, is felt throughout the film just in terms of how people are reacting and how people are, whether or not they help each other or whether or not they turn on each other. Mm. In this scene, it's the fear of this threat that turns people against people. Mm. I love it because in that moment, like there's a scene as we talked about, you said it was a great shot. I, I absolutely agree of the man trying to claw through the window like he's tearing the windscreen apart with his bare hands and he's bleeding. Yeah. For that moment, he's not a man anymore. No. He's, he's a fucking animal. Yeah. And I think it's purposefully recalling the shot from the Lost World of the raptor with its head through the window because yeah. he is he is an animal now. Yeah, that's what threat and what fear has done to him, mm. and that's what it does to people. For years, we lived in a climate of fear following nine eleven, and it made people do a lot of crazy things. Yeah, and I think that's the the thing that I like that they don't shy away from it. But I think at the same time, it's to get another thing that I think put people off. Or, yeah, uh, when they did see it, that it yeah it really confronted those issues really on the nose yeah and again just down to the small scaledness of it you're in with them yeah as such there's no sort of grand sweeping vistas this the way that they shot it there's no big no great wides there's no a, there's like there's probably like three wide shots in the whole film. i can think of the one aerial shot that's actually in the film because he said he wanted it to be told from like he wanted to feel like it was from shot from real locations and there was going to be no swooping helicopter shots and there isn't but i can think of just one wide like aerial shot of the tripod when it's first risen from the intersection yeah yeah and that's that, the intersection shot yeah that's it and that's just to give us a sense of scale yeah and then everything else is just on the ground yeah and whatever height they are that's part of the thing that i like about the way that he shoots the tripods is apart from that one shot that gives us that sense of scale we never really get to see them all within one shot. We get to see a few from Ray's perspective, but I'd say for the most part, 90% of the time we see the tripods, they're bigger than the frame will allow. Yeah. We're only seeing a, a, yeah. a part of them. I, I, I like that. They're, they're so tall, they're so unwieldy, they're bursting out of the frame. Yeah. Actually, I think that Athens sequence as well gives me one of my favourite tripod shot, which is the shot of just a single tripod on the hill mm -hmm. above the street after you've had all the birds fly over. and it, yeah even the lead to that with the birds flying towards yeah. it is it's really spooky for the last couple of podcasts we've talked about david kofa's being a bit of a shitty writer and then 
at least most of the things he introduces in this film are all the positives. Yeah, and yeah, cause definitely. He, he, like the, the birds idea is is one of his, where you like you're saying you're not quite sure should we be going away from where the birds are going or towards yeah. where the birds are going, but they're like an indicator that they're there. Yeah, it's a bit like the barrels in Jaws that the yeah, birds it is, are there. Yeah, but yeah, no, I really like that idea. I think David Coop's one of those writers where he's best when he's working from somebody else's notes. Almost, yeah. and he's working from somebody else's structure. Like um, Jurassic Park is one of his best scripts, and it's because he's working to Michael Crichton's original first draft. Mm. And at least in this one, he's working to Josh Friedman's original first draft, yeah, which I yeah. think was actually more of a typical invasion film, and in that I was told from other perspectives as well. Yeah, and I think he got more of the why. But yeah, some of the things that he actually introduced in this film are some of the film's strongest elements. Although we talked about some of the ideas this film has being the strongest, I think in terms of the invasion elements themselves, one that actually came from the director was to not have this alien invasion threat come from the sky. Mm. And I actually think this is one of the strongest elements in the film. Yeah, yeah. Was that, in fact, the aliens don't come from the sky. There's not a great spaceship that comes out of the blue Mm. and um, starts zapping the shit out of everybody on Earth. They come from the ground. Mm. It's completely the opposite. I don't think there's any way that you can really top Independence Day in terms of big giant spaceships leveling cities now. And I think they understood that. So it's like, well, what do we do? I think it's almost like a, a almost a scarier idea as well. Like they come from within us. Yeah, Jesus, like they've, they've been, been here, here the whole time. time. Yeah. yeah, that really gets into your skin. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah, as a bit of a, a masterstroke, I think. Of- well, one of the things that the film does as well, again, talking about that tunnel vision, is it never answers the question as to why they come from the ground. Yeah. They just do. But it provides enough information that we can rationalise it yeah, as well. Yeah, and we can maybe work it out ourselves. Like, yeah. are they here to harvest us? Because mm-hmm. I think there's one theory on Wikipedia, actually, as well, that they were they planted us here and they were almost like growing us as crops yeah. to harvest later. Well, we find out that they, in fact, need our blood to build their world on. Yeah. They use us to terraform the planet. Mm. Uh, the red weed that in pretty much infects the planet is made from our blood. Mm. And it's like, okay, so they came at a time when there was not enough of us to terraform the planet in the way that they want. So they let us grow like a crop. That's yeah. terrifying. Mm. And I like the fact that you could think, oh, in their hubris, they failed to recognize that other things would grow out yeah. of this. And it's like, you get, you're probably going to get that one A and it's like, we really should have done our homework. Yeah. <laughs> we should have foreseen this. Yeah. We've had a million years to yeah. wait for this. Like, <laughs> I like how it leaves it so like open-ended so you can interpret it and have which way you like. I think that's the point in which it, it leaves us in the position of being the characters and having the same questions that the characters in the film do have. Mm. Like, because we have the same amount of information they have we're coming to the same conclusions and putting out the same theories i like that about the film we're yeah. on an equal peg we don't know more than what they know i mean so many films we get even like it's one of those films that we always go back to but prometheus is a film that tells us more things than the characters know and then suddenly the characters know them if, if you get me it's like um it thinks just by telling the audience it, it it falls into that trap. Well, it does of, it. Com- it does it the wrong way around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's it, what it does. It tells the audience things that are happening, and then the characters are still like a step behind, having to figure it out. Yeah, and um, and then at times it just jumps ahead, and then expects yeah. them to know. I think the other thing that I um, took away from this as well, because the characters and the relationships are so strong, 
this is a film that could have felt very episodic. And it is kind of in its structure, but it never feels like it's an episodic film. No. Because the characters are so tonally uniform throughout. There's no, like, weird... Yeah, yeah, they suddenly suddenly don't change. Like, it's not like they suddenly change at some moment in the film randomly. They they are singularly driven, real people. It is episodic in a way, but it doesn't feel it. I guess part of that is its blistering pace as well. Yeah, yeah. But it does settle somewhat once we actually get to... We spoke about it. it starts with an intersection attack and it forces the characters to run and they eventually lead it leads to this hillside battle mm. and from then onwards for the remainder of the film practically rather than maybe the last 20 minutes they are confined to a basement in a very night of the living dead-esque way mm. and the rest of the film is told from the basement of a farmhouse it ends up that Ray and Rachel, Tom Cruise and Dakota Fanon, share a basement with a character called Ogilvy, played by Tim Robbins, mm. who is, again, we talk about those 9-11 parallels. We've got Robbie, who's the American kid that's angry, who's going to go to war, join the military, go to war. We've got Ray, who's the dad just trying to, to run and protect what's his. You've got Rachel, who is scared, terrified. Mm. She cannot comprehend what has actually happened and is just rendered in a state of complete and utter hysteria. And then you've got Ogilvy, who is the basement digging out kind of, uh, what do you call it? like the apocalyptic nut who reacts to it in such a way that they build a bomb shelter in their back garden. Yeah, and you, you've got a bit of the uh, conspiracy theorist in there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's another character that people didn't react very well to no. at the time, and I, I don't know why. I think people thought, oh, it's just Tim Robbins overacting. And I was like, what? I thought it was played really yeah, well. Yeah, I really liked it. And I liked that it was almost like a glimpse into the future for Tom Cruise if he was to lose Rachel. Yeah. Like he would suddenly realize that that's who he would become yeah. because Ogilvy is a character that's lost everything that he loved. Mm. And we see that even the way that he dresses. He's got a, a ring around his neck and his wife's old wedding ring. And mm. he's got a kid's toy, a couple yeah. of kids' toy and a doll and his belt. I love the character development that's just in the wardrobe. Yeah, it's a really tragic character as well, because especially you know when you when you learn what's going to happen to him as well, yeah. it's just like oh no, but you know that he has to do that, and it's like <laughs> the thing is you have to think about the character. I mean, this is what the film does that I absolutely love. I mean, it's it's kind of harrowing in a way. No, it is harrowing mm. because he's got that ring round his neck, and we know what the tripods do. They turn people into dust. They turn them into dust, much like the dust that came out when the towers came down. Mm. And that's purposefully drawing that parallel. But that's what it does. And you, you think about his character. He had to sift through his wife's ashes to look for her wedding ring mm. so he could put it around his neck. He had to sift through his kids' ashes to find their toys and put them on his belt. And once you start to think about that character in that way, mm. you start to understand why he is the way he is. People are saying it's overacting. I think it's because his character does kind of come out of the blue and suddenly we have to adjust to it. But I think once you actually think about the character and what he's been through, you start to understand just why he is as unhinged as he is. Yeah. And I really do like the claustrophobic nature of that whole section of the film as well. Like, And again, it's one of the main parts of the film which really plays with sound and light. George Powell's version does have a scene in like a little farmhouse like that where the characters are hiding from one of the uh, spaceships and they are kind of uh, sniffed out by a camera that sneaks through the house from one of the ships and we do get that scene retold in this film yeah yeah. and uh, it's very much in the same vein as the raptors in the kitchen but 
it's, I suppose it has its own individuality as well because the camera itself moves as, as a character. It's got its own character. It's more like a snake. It's more serpentine, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Well, I say I was saying before, it reminded me more of the the scene in the abyss. Oh yes, yeah, with the, definitely. Is it the pseudopod or whatever it's called? The, yeah, I can't remember the name of the bloody. It's thing, like an evil version yeah. of that. Work in progress T one thousand, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's our test footage. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I'd say that's the most effective part, and I say there's another intervention, but I'd say it's not as effective as yeah. the, as the probe going in because that's uh, for me personally. I feel like. It falls down a little bit. I feel it shows the aliens too much, and mm-hmm. and again, it shows them too much. But also, I think the the design, although good, fails in the execution for what they're actually trying to do with the yeah. film. Yeah, they become a little bit too cutesy and and relatable. Um, I absolutely agree with you on this part. I mean, this is a film that I really do quite enjoy. Uh, almost, I have quite a contrarian stance about War of the Worlds and its qualities. But this is a point where I can't really defend it because I do agree. I think that the aliens themselves, they're not really well handled in this film because they're too childlike, I think, and innocent, and they're not scary enough. I'm not saying that we need to see an alien that is as threatening as the tripods themselves because I get it, they're aliens. But at the same time, there's a feeling that we've been here, we've done this before as well. Mm. Again, it looks kind of generic, and you strip it of its threat, then... I don't understand the point. I think they look great in movement. Mm. I think the way that they move and interact with the environment is fantastic. But the actual face themselves and the head, it looks like a cross between your usual grey alien, like uh, the big bobble head, and the Independence Day alien with its crown. Yeah, and this is always something that I, I've always taken from when they designed the alien for Alien with the Giga and, and things always look more threatening when they don't have eyes and this is a real case of where they give them eyes that look so sympathetic like they're like cow's eyes yeah they are and, yeah, um, that's it. yeah you're right and uh, things like that they're always undone because of the eyes yeah and if you want to make something look unknown and mysterious just get rid of the eyes mm-hmm. and it would look ten times more terrifying because you just don't know what mm-hmm. you don't know what they're thinking at all or, or even what they're looking at yeah. and that's why things like the probe look better because it it either has an all-seeing eye which doesn't focus on anything or at least doesn't have anything it's just like the alien it's just a mouth it reminded me of the of one of the characters out of farscape yeah yeah (laughs) like a combination between that and the alien that's in independence day yeah and it's like they're really well rendered especially given the time that they had but it's like uh, they shouldn't have done it they They do feel like part of the environment the Mm. cgi is not what the issue is here i think it's the it's the it's the design Mm. and I mean, even to compare it to the design from George Powell's version of the film, it's certainly hulkier, but I would say it's far scarier and certainly more alien. It's got this, um, it's got an, a central eye. It's like a cyclops that has much like the uh, the camera that snakes through the house. It's yeah. got these um, lights on it, so it's like red, green, and blue. But it's also it's um, it's it's got veins throughout it that pulsate. And I remember being a kid and seeing that. And although yeah, yeah, it does look hokey now. There was a, it felt real to me, and it felt and it scared me. Mm. Um, and it, even when I watch it now, you know, I laugh because it's still I can feel that twinge. The thing that I love about it is that it does look completely alien. I guess the problem with War of the Worlds is, like you say, they've tried to make them too relatable as characters. They've gone too far in trying to 
make us connect with them in some kind of way like notice maybe it's just in terms of conveying the intelligence that they yeah, supposedly yeah. have because it, it, it does feel like a little bit of a lapse because that's what they've been trying to achieve throughout the whole film is yeah. this, this complete disconnect yes with what's going on and they're not understanding at all what's going on uh, and, and it, they tr- and then there's that bit where they really almost like they drop the ball a little bit because yeah and especially when you've got little sequences where you've got them being like curious like yeah. they should never they shouldn't be curious about anything to do with us you know you have him twiddling with the bike wheel and it falling off and yeah being clumsy and it's like nah, no not for this film diminishing their threat by yeah. showing them in such a way and again i suppose if we do take it along that 9-11 way that if we explore the themes further isn't the point that with terrorism and if that's what they're trying to convey which i know they are we don't get to see the people that are attacking us or yeah. the things that are attacking us. It just happens to us. Yeah, because that's the thing I liked from the the illustrations of the the Jeff Wayne one is the fact that you hear them and it's the, that horrible that horrible sound. But then when you look at the illustrations, the only indication you get that there's something inside those tripods is when you get the painting of the birds eating the flesh from inside the glass yeah. that's been smashed, and it's it's an awful image. And it's always stuck with me because it's really like it just gets into my skin. Like mm-hmm. you don't know what they look like, but there's something in there. Yeah. Um, and in fact, if they were going to show the aliens, they could have just left it. And it would have been a really nice moment as well, like to have left it to that end shot when it does plop out. Yeah. And nearly you can see that it's just this little pathetic looking alien. Yeah. You know, that, I mean, and that's a point really, where like, its threat should be diminished. Yeah. Because it's dying. It's been defeated. And I think it's one of those things where it's like. Maybe there's like pressure to show the aliens or something. I think so. I remember as well that in some of the concept art that was released after the release of the film, that in fact there was images of the experiments that was being carried out on the ships themselves as Mm. the creatures were experimenting on humans. And in that moment after Ray gets abducted and put into the basket, Mm. uh, for a moment he was supposed to see what was happening inside the ship. And you could see that they were like drilling into somebody, but all that's lost. <laughs> yeah, because they don't. I'm glad they didn't show us that. That's too far. That's yeah, t- yeah. that's too horrific. But um, all that is lost when we see those characters. We don't see that side to them. They just look kind of like cute aliens. <laughs> they don't look like characters capable of that. No. As well, I guess that that might be part of the issue as well. I mean, people who commit terrorism maybe don't look like they are capable of it and yet they do but but i think you could I, have shown I, that and, yeah. and say oh look there's this little alien here yeah at the end a, and but, going, but oh, yeah that, there's a what... time to show it yeah there's a and time I think they to would, show they that. just they it was just a bit too soon really yeah even if they wanted this whole basement scene just in the way that they shot it it could have been that we just see glimpses of it you know because i thought they were just going to do it in shadow yeah, yeah they should have just done it in shadow and just have that like hand inserts and things like that Filmmakers have, have fallen into the trap time and time and time again of just showing far too much. Yeah. Okay, before we start wrapping things up here, I think we've got a couple of things that we wanted to add as well. One of the things that we've missed out when talking about this film is, in fact, the score from John Williams, mm. which is, um, I would say, is unlike any of his other scores, really. It's got a few of the same elements, but it's actually quite different. Yeah, I really liked it for how minimalist at times it is. Yeah. With John Williams' scores, you usually expect it to be big, grand, and sweeping. Yeah. And have really strong melodies. 
there's um, a couple of bits where he goes into sort of classic sci-fi monster movie yeah, areas. Yeah. You especially. do get that Godzilla moment as yeah. well every now and again where the brass suddenly kicks in. It's all bomb, 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 bomb. Yeah. You know, you do get a couple of moments like that just to kind of appease. Yeah, but then you have some really small moments that are either they're really small orchestration wise but then also quite dissonant yeah as well so yeah it didn't feel like a typical john williams score actually Mm -hmm. there's elements to it that i really like because during that whole intersection sequence there's a piece of music that plays over it as well and what i like about john williams is how he gives characters in the films he normally gives them themes but in this film he decides to give them instruments yeah and um how they tripods themselves are represented with like this harsh brassy sound almost Mm. like they're talking and then when they turn on the heat rage you get this really subtle high-pitched female choir yeah that just like it's it's just builds to a point where you almost feel like they're screaming Mm. it's so unsettling during a sequence which is incredibly unsettling Mm. and um i I think it's uh one of my favorite pieces of music not for its themes but just in terms of what it does to me like how it turns the hairs on the back of my neck up this is john williams really going for uh, how it can make you feel rather than anything that's hummable yeah this is the very first film that he had to start without having the completed film yeah because of the schedule even though uh, that was the case, it didn't look like it phased him particularly. <laughs> Not it's whatsoever. Just like, he kind of just got the film. He was in his 70s at this point, mid-70s, I, su- I suppose. Nah, he's uh, still a young whippersnapper yeah. at this point. <laughs> he just he, he knows what he's doing. But uh, considering the working relationship he's had with Steven Spielberg, for it to take this long for him to get around to scoring a film where he can't actually see it all, that's quite an achievement. So this, this is how long it took into his career for him that to arise. Yeah, yeah. Is it me? Or does John Williams always talk like he's mid-orgasm? <laughs> like, he's just had... He's just basically been on a 50, 60-year-long music orgasm. <laughs> yeah. And he's just like, well... Uh, um, yeah, he's <laughs> like, just about like, to just like, go... Like he's, uh, just, like he's just edging the whole yeah, time. Because yeah. he's, he's so... In, the thing is, uh, that's what I love about it. He's so into what he's doing. He's, yeah. he's just, and you can tell he just absolutely loves every single minute of what he's doing. Yeah. And um, he just talks about the way he talks about using the orchestra and things. Mm. It's just like you can you can just get his passion. That's why I think that's why so much saying. enthusiasm. Yeah, I think that's part of the reason why um, Spielberg himself works so well is because when I watched the documentary and you mentioned this when you watched the documentary, mm. but how enthusiastically Steven Spielberg is with almost every single every single shot of him on the set. He's just. He's so enthusiastically involved with everything. Yeah. And he loves what he's doing. He clearly loves it. And I, I guess that's the thing about Spielberg. He surrounds himself with those like-minded people because Tom Cruise, for all, all his faults as being a quite kooky individual, he is enthusiastic about making films. And every time you see him on set, yeah. he's so focused on what he's doing, and but in such a fun way. And that's not even just on this film. That's on pretty much every film he's ever made. When yeah, he's a hard worker. He's a hard worker. And I think that's really informed by his experiences early on as a filmmaker. The only time you really see pictures or images of him not looking that way is on Jaws. Yeah. And I think it's the experience of making Jaws and uh, things like Jewel that informed him to say, I made Jaws yeah. and I made Jewel in 13 days. I can do anything. Yeah, if I put my mind to it and I, I have this upbeat nature because I've I've done all that shit. Nothing's ever going to be as hard as doing Jaws. Yeah, or, or, or duel in yeah. thirteen days. So he's always got that in perspective and going right. I'm really lucky and I can sort of 
have fun and there's no reason for me to be like that anyway. Yeah, I'd say the so. only time in the documentary that we actually saw him not be enthusiastic about what he was doing was during what he said was the most harrowing scene in the film, was mm. the uh, the scene in the baskets where yeah. Ray has been abducted and it's a lot of wailing. There's a lot of people that are just waiting to be chosen by this tentacle that comes yeah, out yeah. of the tripod and takes him inside and they know that's where they're going to die. Mm. You can see that that's getting to him. He said he's glad it only had to take one or two days to do that whole sequence because it was it was a really quite harrowing to film. So all yeah, these people yeah. just screaming the whole time. Leading up to this end, I just want to talk about this whole 9-11 thematic undercurrent that's laced throughout the entire film and just some of the scenes that really work well because of it and what other films have used it and to lesser effect. This is a harrowing film. It truly is. And like I say, what it uses is terrorism as its basis. And one of my favorite scenes in the film, after this whole intersection battle where people are literally blasted into dust and their clothes and dust comes raining down on the rest of the crowd. Like you say, in a very similar way until this, uh, that the smoke plumes or the dust plumes came up when the towers came down mm. and it engulfed hundreds of people in the street. It recalls all that kind of imagery that many of us saw I would say this is one of the few films that actually does it justice because, like we say, it's the undercurrent. It's the thing that drives the entirety of the film towards its conclusion. And it's the thing that it's examining throughout the film is the way that people react to terrorism mm. and w what it can do to people. And I was just thinking of other films as well. You mentioned before Man of Steel, like you were saying about Zack Snyder. I think the other one that I wanted to mention was Transformers 3 in that it almost name checks war of the world because in that film we get people falling from buildings much like the falling man and stuff like that and we get to see these transformers who are essentially alien beings they have these cannons that literally do the exact same thing as the heat rays which is just blast people into these plumes of dust yeah but it has none of the weight or the depth Michael Bay's just using it because he thinks it looks cool. Yeah. And you're right. When you were talking about destruction porn before, I think it's got to a point where people are being really disrespectful with what images they're using and are not paying attention to what weight and what impact those images should be having. And they're using them to have fun. And there's something grossly wrong about that, in my opinion. I think that's part of the reason why Man of Steel gets it so wrong is because it uses all of this 9-11 imagery, but it doesn't affect any of the characters mm. they kill hundreds of people thousands of people but it doesn't affect anybody and that happens in transformers as well with war of the worlds every single death is felt and spielberg makes sure you feel it and there's that specific one that lady that he draws in on who's running through the yeah running yeah. through the street and she just kind of a she, like as the heat ray hits her she tries to scream and she's already gone She's already turned into dust. Yeah. And it's like he, he lets us know that this hurts. This thing that's happening to all these people, it hurts. So many other filmmakers would not allow us to have that moment to recognize what's happening to these yeah. people in that way. And I love the scene in which Ray gets home and he sits down with his kids and he's shaken because of this thing that's happened to him. And then all of a sudden he realizes that he's covered in dust. And when he goes into this, sees himself in the mirror, he realizes it's not just dust, it's people. You know? Yeah. And yeah. That, that gets me. Even thinking about that scene now, that gets me. That, and that instantly puts me in that place of watching that TV and seeing people running through the streets covered mm. in dust and not knowing, is that people or is that building? Yeah. All over them. And 
I do like how Spielberg uses that to tell this tale, but it also jars against the ending because it's so real and so downbeat that when we do actually get to the ending, it's where Spielberg finally gives in to his sentimentality and he brings Robbie back as well. Mm. And we've, I think we've brushed over it, but that's one of the major things that I think is where this film falls apart is in bringing Robbie back. Because Robbie is, like we've talked about, he represents the kid that goes to war and he returns a changed man. And you get a feeling that Ray's probably deserved to have his son back because of all that he's been through. And they meet each other as changed people. They see each other as equals and they hug. It's all a bit soppy. It's all a bit wet. Yeah, it feels very contrived. Yeah. When everything else has not been contrived. And I keep thinking, to take that further, this whole terrorism element further, you know, kids go to war and they don't come back home. There's nothing wrong with representing that in film. Sometimes parents lose kids to war mm. because they're angry and because they feel like they've got something to fight for. Like, I think it would have been more poignant mm. and more pointed to actually end it with that, with him and his daughter turning up at the house and them not having a son anymore. We don't find out what's happened to him. The question still remains. Yeah. Because that's what it is like for many people. And also, yeah, it's just more realistic and, and it feels more of a piece of what else is going on in terms of when they don't really know what's going on with what the aliens are doing or what yeah. they're doing elsewhere and there's all this false information. To have that closure so neatly wrapped up, it does feel completely out of place. Yeah, and it, it feels like a cheat. It, it does feel like a big cheat. And like I say, I, I know that the, there is the argument out there that Ray perhaps deserves this, but people don't get in life what they deserve. And I think we see throughout the film what everything that every single person has been through in this film, none of them deserve that. No. It's just these are things that happen to people in life if we look at it from a terrorism perspective. Mm. So, yeah, I I get the feeling that it does fall apart in the end, even if we look beyond the naturally anticlimactic feeling of the tripods being overcome by the common cold not through human interaction or anything like that. That's naturally anticlimactic, as important as it is to mm. convey in this film. But also, uh, just while we're talking about this, one of the things actually that um, we've spoke about as being one of the film's flaws as well, just while we're talking about things that jarred against us, um, mm. you mentioned as well about the opening narration. I just felt like... I know it's kind of referencing the verse film and obviously the narration of the book, mm-hmm. especially the, the no one would have believed yes thing but i feel like because they're going so realistic and so down to earth and so grounded in terms of the characters we're just seeing what the characters see as a bookend it's totally at odds with everything else that's going on with the film yeah and it just feels like it's come out of another film entirely there's nothing in the middle to stylistically reinforce that no approach and it just comes out i mean it starts off okay but then when you get it back at the end, it's like, oh, this yeah. is weird. That's how they're going to end it like that. Yeah. And um, yeah, I just feel they could have come up with something a little bit more, well, a little bit more cinematic and thematically appropriate and more imaginative mm-hmm. than just a voiceover. Because it's basically Morgan Freeman going, once upon a time, 9-11 happened. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. In his uh, rich molasses. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> Although it's Morgan Freeman. It's like Richard Burton did this better. Yeah. They, they could have done something else. Like, cause mm-hmm. Especially as they were changing loads more of this film. You know, the, the film itself is a very clear identity away from the book. Yeah. And I feel like this is a bit too much of like a, a throwback to that 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it also, as we said, it sets up a film that doesn't actually take place. It doesn't feel appropriate for what this film is. Yeah. And, it felt uh, more appropriate for, like, Men in Black or something like that. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean... <laughs> no, you're absolutely right, yeah. I and, I and I agree with you. It's there because you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Yeah. You need to have this kind of opening that actually pays homage to the book. It needs to have these words because these are the iconic words from the book and from George Powell's version as well, from Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds as well. Mm. But... um. At the same time, like you say, it sets the audience up for a film that doesn't actually happen. And the other thing, going back to that flat ending as well, it kind of annoyed me as well that the family, the privileged family, obviously the house gets destroyed and everything, but that street and everything around it is so storybook and uh, doesn't seem to have been affected at all by anything that's been going on for the yeah, yeah, two hours. And no one else has been affected. It just felt so false. It did. Yeah, I mean, we don't even get the red vine or anything nothing. like that around there. And, and even the presence of the red vine itself shows just how um, how hard it's been for everybody everywhere. Because, I mean, these tripods are literally uh, building the new environment in the blood of the innocents. That's... Mm horrific i mean that's again relating to terrorism the whole idea of building a new society on the bloodshed of innocent lives mm. but the, yeah you're right it's they are completely untouched living in this little kind of like haven <laughs> and it, yeah, it, it doesn't make any sense and even boston itself has tripods on their side and and still like yeah, falling over yeah. you've got red vine climbing over monuments and stuff like that yeah and it's like why do those characters deserve to be treated any better than yeah it's just felt very weird mm, it does yeah I mean, I know that's the goal, but even so, it's that thing where, uh, yeah, Robbie shouldn't have come back and maybe they shouldn't have got right to the end. Yeah. It's far too neat. With that particular scene, you could have taken that from any film that could have been about any situation. Yeah. Didn't have to directly relate to that film or any of those events. It's a storybook ending. Yeah. It really is a storybook ending. And it's a real shame that it's there. Yeah. You could have ended a scene early. Yeah. You didn't need any of that at all. You could have ended on the on the alien plopping out. Yeah, you could have. I do think you need to see something with Miranda Otto. But at the same time, I think she's a bit of a dick anyway, so I'm not that bothered by Yeah, her. yeah. I mean, we, we talked about this as well earlier. That the, I mean, <laughs> she she does seem somewhat unreasonable. I do get that Ray's selfish and he can't see beyond the end of his own nose anyway because yeah. he's very self-involved. But he is a hard worker. He does go to work on the docks. At, at the beginning of the film, they're stood on the sidewalk judging him because he turned up late to pick up his own kids. It's not like he's been out partying all night. He's been yeah. at fucking work. And so, yeah, it instantly sets these characters up as being unlikable. And so the goal at the end is to kind of get to them and it's supposed to be this big happy yeah, it's ending. Like, it's like, I don't like these characters anyway. Yeah, it's like you still got the, they're still sharing the same room. It's like, he's got a little house. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we all don't live in a fucking mansion in the middle of nowhere. One of the things that we do have to talk about as well, just before we go any further, is as we have talked about the tripods, they are amazing, they are immense, but they are also unseen. And their presence is felt throughout the rest of the film, even when they're not on screen. Mm. And one of those scenes is, in fact, just a giant set. When they do eventually get to the mum's house in the middle of the suburbs, yeah. and they stay there overnight, and it, overnight there's a big crash that they yeah, hear yeah. while they're hiding in the basement. And when they get up in the morning and go outside, there's this fantastic set. Yeah. And you've actually been there. Yeah, I went past it. Yeah, because it's part of the studio tour. Well, at least was. I'm not sure it still is now. But yeah, I went to Universal Studios Hollywood in 2005. And uh, yeah, it was all there. Yeah. To see. And it's this Boeing 747, I think, that's been torn apart 
it's made to look like it's just crashed in the middle of a mm. sub- I say suburban street. It's uh, much more than that as well. It's like yeah. a street of mansions. Yeah, yeah. So it's a John Hughes street, really. Isn't yeah, it, it is. It yes. Is. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, that's one of the only other little bits as well where you get um, David Coe failing on one of his little. Yeah, rules he's bending his own rules uh, here. You, you get the news crew, and obviously, yeah, they're not reporting on it like they would normally do. It's not like a, some fucking Godzilla thing going on. Yeah. Uh, but you do get exposition, lady. A yeah. little bit. And I feel like, mm, do they really need that? She has no character. She says a couple of things to just kind of like brush. I guess that it's there to be like the audience or I guess some people in the audience, like you say, need it spoon fed to them. Yeah. And this is just to be there and to say that, that here are a couple of spoonfuls and then we're going to leave all this shit behind. Yeah. But then you also get the, the typical movie and news reporter thing where it's like, oh, were you in that? Were you on the plane? Oh, no, it would have made a good story. Yeah, it's like, mm, sounds like I feel like I'm in like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or something like that. <laughs> yeah. It feels like that. It feels like something that Hank Azari would have said in Godzilla. It doesn't feel yeah, yeah. Um, doesn't feel really right. No, yeah. But yeah, the rest of that scene and the whole reveal of it is great. Like, yeah, just walking out because the idea was to make it look as if he was walking into a house that felt intact, but then when you pull back, it's all been. You can see you're sort of peeling back the layers. Yeah. And you're going, oh wow. Oh oh shit. Fuck. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's another scene in which they do that Wizard of Oz reveal because yeah. they do speak in a documentary of a wizard, the, the Wizard of Oz reveal and that's later when they're in the basement and when they come outside you go from a black and white environment out into a kind of red landscape mm. and suddenly it's like all in colour and they do that again here it's almost like you think he's walking through a house but as we slowly pull back we find that house is actually completely destroyed and so has the street it belongs on mm. it's, a, it's a great reveal and that's the thing about Spielberg that I have always loved and appreciated is that he makes complex shots seem effortless yeah and uh, there's a scene on the on the documentary of them filming when Ray uses the axe to cut through the camera that's snaking through the basement and the shot itself seems really simple. It wakes Ray up. He smashes it out of the way. He picks up an axe. The axe comes into frame and he starts hitting it. But there are so many moving parts when you see them actually filming it. Mm. The camera itself is the alien camera is some guy holding it. That's a special effect. And he's, you've got about four people doing something during that shot for what is just one man with an axe. And it seems so effortless when you actually see the film. But yeah, it is so complex. Mm. I love that about Spielberg. Yeah. Okay, so now we've dissected this alien. It's time for us to look at what the critics and audiences made of War of the Worlds to just better understand why it's been forgotten. Was this film a flop? Are the reviews terrible? First up, let's check in with the critics. Well, the critics gave this a 74% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average rating of 7 out of 10. That's after 251 reviews. And the critics' consensus is... Steven Spielberg's adaptation of War of the Worlds delivers on the thrill and paranoia of H.G. Wells' classic novel while impressively updating the action and effects for modern audiences. Now, that seems quite accurate for me. I mean, it doesn't quite touch on the flaws that the film has, and it does have some flaws that everybody is aware of. But it is the audience score that I think vastly underrates this film. So, in terms of the audience, only 42% liked it, and that's after 32 million user ratings. Wow, really? Yeah. No, because I was going to say I thought the, the 7 out of 10 was... Uh, was. I mean, I would rate it higher because it's one of those films that I think is a... Um, it, it's heavily flawed, mm. but, but I... I think the 74% is, is right, Spot on, actually. yeah. Like 75% would be yeah. a good... It's, 
War of the Worlds is one of those films that I can't argue with that when they bring up the flaws and that, but I, I still think it has more value than that. It's one of those like flawed greats for me. Yeah. But yeah, the forty two percent is vastly, vastly below what I would say. And they awarded it an average rating of two point nine out of five. So that's not even like six no, out of ten. No, not when you look at some audience ratings and some absolute dog shit films. Yeah, exactly. I honestly, <laughs> I honestly think that the ratings for Man of Steel is probably higher. Oh, yeah. Which is just, uh, it's ludicrous. Yes, because it's Superman. <laughs> and Superman's fucking cool. And I don't care. I'll give you death threats if you give a bad <laughs> review to a Superman film. As everybody can probably tell, we've been paid off by Disney. Did you get your check today? Yeah, in fact, I'm getting another one through in the next couple of days. I, yeah, yeah. I'm waiting until Suicide Squad. Yeah, then they're going to yeah, send yeah. me the big one. Okay, and Roger Ebert awarded this film two out of four. In a review that I heavily disagree with, he said, War of the Worlds is a big clunky movie containing some sensational sights, but lacking the zest and joyous energy we expect from Steven Spielberg. It proceeds with the lead-footed deliberation of its 1950s predecessors to give us an alien invasion that is malevolent, destructive, and from the alien point of view, pointless. They've been planning this for millions of years and have gone to a lot of trouble to invade Earth for no apparent reason and with a seriously flawed strategy. What happened to the sense of wonder Spielberg celebrated in Close Encounters of the Third Kind and the dazzling imagination of Minority Report? I mean, that's a heavily critical review that I actually disagree with. I yeah, mean, it's it, a little odd, actually, because he's not going for that sense no. of wonder. You're wanting another film entirely, but he's giving you something completely different than yeah, that. Yeah, you're judging it for the film it isn't rather than the film it is yeah i don't think a sense of wonder or joy is anything that spielberg is trying to achieve with war of the world and if you want that from a film there are other spielberg films that you can go to like the ones that yeah, he mentioned like i've done that sci-fi film i want to do this sci-fi film. yeah it's like and again i think just because we don't know the answers the exact answers of what the aliens are doing here and why they're here we can certainly rationalize and come to our own conclusions yeah, but yeah. the film is not interested in the why it's a, again, it's interesting in what this does to us. Yeah. I think this is one of the cases where I think Ebert's missed a point a little bit. Yeah. We've seen it a couple of times before where he just doesn't get the film. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is definitely a classic case of that. And moving on to Empire, they awarded the film four out of five stars, and this is from a review by Colin Kennedy, and he said, Dark and stormy, even gloomy, this is a distinctly autumnal blockbuster from the man who invented summer. <laughs> I, I think that's, that's a great, great line. It's a, <laughs> such a great line. A greatest hits package from our greatest living entertainer. There is almost over much to admire here, but only the moments that aspire to post 9-11 relevance chill as well as thrill. Mm. I think that's absolutely spot on, both in terms of the review and the amount it's awarded the film. Mm. And again, moving back to the audience score, IMDB rated this film 6.5 out of 10, so slightly higher than Rotten Tomatoes. But um, still under for IMDb, mm. I would say. Okay, but moving on to the box office, just how did this film fare? Was it a hit? Was it a flop? <laughs> I think we will soon find out. Over to you, Andy. Yeah, it did pretty well, actually. It had a production budget of $132 million, which for a film like this is uh, on the low side, actually, considering the, the speed. I would have yeah. expected that the costs would rise. Yeah, I mean, because even of how they, little time they yeah. would have had to do everything. I mean, if they'd had more time, he could have been 110. Yeah. And it made uh, 234 million domestically, but foreign, it made 357 and a half million dollars. <laughs> and yeah, that really um, brings home my theory of who reacted more positively to the film. Yeah. And embraced it more 
than maybe the domestic audience did. I feel like, yeah, you can definitely tell why people don't like this film, but also just in terms of like maybe the American critics, why they didn't like the film. Because yeah. maybe it's one of those things where it's still a little bit too close to home. It's still a little bit raw. Yeah. Uh, like the nerve is still raw. Yeah. Even going down to the Roger Ebert review versus the Empire review, that is a British critic's consensus versus an American critic's consensus. Yeah. He's wanting the wonder. Yeah. And the happiness and the escapism. He wants to escape. That's Whereas the, thing. the British critics going, oh yeah, the pin and point and all this 9-11 stuff, great. Yeah. So you can really see the contrast between the two cultures, really. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it comes to a grand total of 591, well, almost 592 million. Yeah. And uh, yeah, for that budget and everything, it's uh, that was pretty solid. It's a massive hit. It's, yeah, it's... especially at the time, because we were dealing 11 years ago, films didn't break a billion. Um, no, like no. they do now. People think, oh, uh, it hasn't broken a billion. And it's like, <laughs> films never used to do that. Yeah. They get the one film that used to do really well. It like, wasn't the benchmark no. back then. It is now. It is the benchmark for success now. It wasn't back then. I think anything over 500 million, anything over 400 million yeah. was, was a success. And not just a success, but perhaps a giant success. But yeah, even that for a non-franchise film. You've got the star power, which would have been a little bit damaged anyway by this point. Mm-hmm. Not least to Mr. Cruz's behaviour around this time. <laughs> yeah. It did really, really well, I think. Well, one of the things that people said at the time was it could have probably done more if it weren't for Tom Cruise's personality, perceived personality at the time, or his persona. Because in the lead-up to the release of War of the Worlds, this was when he went on Oprah to do that interview that has become infamous for declaring his love for Katie Holmes. And they said that that actually probably damaged the film and it probably could have made more on its opening weekend had that not turned the tide on what yeah. people, how people saw Tom Cruise. And obviously a lot of his Scientology work was coming to light back then as well. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I think he's regained somewhat since then. But it's I, I'm often saddened by how much of a loon he is in real life. Yeah. Because I, he, I quite like him as an actor. I think he, he works hard for what he does. Yeah, and he was like he always seems so nice as well. It's like, oh why, Tom? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, a very interesting week. Yeah. That it opened on, uh, just in terms of the array of films. Some some really treasured films and some really forgotten films, like ones that just went like that. Yeah. It opens at number one. It does just under $65 million in its opening weekend, and it has a total gross of that week of uh, $100 million. Okay. At number two, you've got Batman Begins in its third week. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's always a film I feel like, when you look at the actual end figures, it's like, especially compared to the other two Batmans, it's like, that made no money. Yeah, I'm always surprised that they made a sequel yeah. for the amount of money that they did and gave Christopher Nolan the amount of control that they did because of just how little that film made. Yeah. It just about scraped even, maybe if that. And I think that was a film because it was critically well-received. Yes. And was able to push through. And I also think it was because of the work it did rebranding Batman because yeah. uh, following Batman and Robin, nobody wants to see a Batman film. Mm. And this managed to just, just about turn the tide. And I think there's probably still that trepidation at the time yeah maybe but uh it was all turned around i think maybe even just in like uh maybe video rentals as well yeah i'd imagine that would have been huge at the time um then you've got mr and mrs smith at number three. Oh, geez that's fourth week that's disappeared i remember going to cinema for that yeah, yeah that's another film that doesn't know how to end and then we've got two ridiculously forgotten films in four and five we've got bewitched at number four <laughs> i went cinema to see that yeah. as well 
And we've got Herbie fully loaded at number five in its second week also. Egad. Yeah. Um, Pre-cocaine Lindsay Lohan. Yeah. Well, probably... Yeah, probably... Probably cocaine adult (laughs) Lindsay Lohan at this point. Much less forgotten, we've got Madagascar. Yes. Number six in its sixth week. Well, they're still doing Madagascar-type films or spin-offs. Yeah. Yeah. Like Madagascar Goes to Jail. Um, Madagascar Mission in Moscow <laughs> sort of thing it's getting to that point when they had the Europe's Most Wanted and I was like Jesus they're going to go everywhere <laughs> Yeah. now they're going to be doing an Australian one soon yeah Madagascar goes to Guantanamo yeah Madagascar Down Under <laughs> you've got to have Paul Hogan as a voice in yeah. that haven't you we've got Rebound at number 7 in its first week I actually have no idea I have no clue I'm sure whatsoever. that must have been like a really forgettable like chick flick I'm thinking because maybe one of those ones that only really gets like light in America. I I don't know yeah, anything I have no about idea it at what all. It is. <laughs> Number eight, we've got Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. Woo! Seventh week, it's working. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! <laughs> oh, it is. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. No. No, you, even, you even get Palpatine doing the noise. Yes. No, no, no. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people think it's the best of the prequels, but it's still pretty shit. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I'm not up for anybody defending that. I'm nope. sorry. Um, we've got... Oh, geez, We've got The Longest Yard at number nine. Mm-hmm. Oh, another Adam Sandler classic. Yeah. And then we've got George A. Romero's Land of the Dead at number I 10. I went to cinema to see that as well. Yeah. I would so, see quite a lot in this week. Yeah. You, what were you doing with your six, time? Six films in this week. Jesus, you spent an awful lot of money that month. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I imagine that's another film that may pop up at some point on this podcast. Uh, I know that we've had a couple of people mention it. So maybe, maybe. But yeah, a real mixed bag of a week. Certainly is, yeah. Yeah. And nothing much to really contend with it. I mean, if No, it had it's been, probably the perfect week for it. If it had been any different, maybe Batman would have been a bit stronger, maybe. But, yeah. Uh, nothing really to touch it, because some of these films have been out for a while as well. Yeah. Okay, so we're at that time in the podcast where all that's left for me to ask is the two questions I ask at the end of every single episode. And first up, Andy, are you any closer to understanding why... Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds has been forgotten. Yeah, I kind of feel like maybe it's um, subject matter and the way that it dealt with uh, an alien invasion story was just not what people were expecting or, or wanting. Yeah. And um, yeah, and I feel some of its flaws do let it down a little bit, And but I say it's a really admirable piece of work, actually, and I... I wasn't expecting to like it actually when I was going into it. I've tried to get you to watch this film a few times yeah. and I know that you've really pushed against it. Yeah, and then no, I actually really enjoyed it. Especially as a Tom Cruise film. Yeah. As well. But I can definitely see why some people would have been put off by it because it is a very small story mm-hmm. told against this rather large backdrop, but we only see glimpses. It's almost like um, when people complain about the, um, the Godzilla movie. Uh, yeah. About not being it able to It reminded me a lot of the Godzilla fight. movie. And. Uh, I'm sorry, but that's not the problem of that film. No. Uh, I like that aspect of it where you you saw little glimpses and it was really a on-the-ground perspective of yeah. what's going on. It was more other actually, things in that film that I actually were the think problem. War of the Worlds has been an influence yeah, yeah, on definitely. the likes of Godzilla. And the problem is with Godzilla is its characters are nowhere near as strong as the characters in this film, in my opinion, or at least The thing is, Ray. it has those characters. It's like if they killed Tom Cruise off yeah. 40 minutes in. <laughs> and then we followed Robbie. Yeah. yeah. And that's that, basically and that what it nobody is. Nobody gives a shit about Robbie. Yeah. 
And that's basically the mistake they made with Godzilla. There's no reason to kill off Bryan Cranston when Bryan Cranston is one of the most popular actors of the moment. Why the fuck would you kill him off? Yeah. It's just... It's because it's of mental empty shock value. It's mental. All. It's like we want to shock the audiences, and then there's nothing else. Yeah, that's there's just no like, other reason. Anyway, yeah, no, I agree with you on that absolutely. And just to uh, sum up my thoughts as well on uh, War of the Worlds, I would say that the reason that it's been forgotten is that it's just not the fun adventure film with carefree thrills and action beats that people expected. Mm. This is not Jurassic Park. This is not Close Encounters. War of the Worlds is a dark, sometimes harrowing, and often intense thriller with little time for things like joy. Mm. And I think that's at least part of the reason it's been forgotten. There's other reasons like Tom Cruise's persona and how closely linked it was to this film at the time. But also, going back to that 9-11 thing, people didn't want to see that in their films at that time. And we can see that represented in a way that 9-11 based films and Iraq war based films flopped very often at the box office. And it took until, I think, American Sniper for a film about the Iraq war to actually make money. Yeah. And that was over, that was like 12, 13 years later. Yeah. So finally, is War of the Worlds one of the best of the forgotten movies or is it simply best forgotten? Oh, I definitely think it's one of the best of the forgotten. And um, it's one of those things where I think people have maybe seen it, but maybe just like watch it again. Yeah. Uh, Maybe with a fresh pair of eyes because it's one of those films that is definitely a film of its time because it was so caught up in that post 9-11 era but no i think if you watch it now as its own thing i think you'll be pleasantly surprised as i was because i said i wasn't expecting anything yeah i thought i was just gonna i thought it was gonna be really half-baked mm-hmm. um, which is the kind of impression i got off my mum when she watched it that it was a bit half-baked and now there are a couple of little bits and pieces that are, are definitely, definitely half-baked definitely. in it but they're only minor compared to the the whole yeah the core of the film is is really solid and and i think really well executed no, I absolutely agree with you. This is one of the most underrated Spielberg films I think that I've ever seen anyway. Mm, just in terms of the quality of it as well. Yeah. Um, and it's strange that we are going to be probably be taking a contrarian stance on this film, having liked it as much as we yeah. did. And even for like nostalgic value, because um, people are always going about Hook and things. And I watched Hook recently and it's, it's not that great. No, it isn't. No. And um, it really surprised me how not that great it was, because I always remember it being fondly. It's one of these things where we ride so much on nostalgia these days and go, yeah. oh yeah, Hook, that was great. And even Spielberg himself, it's not a film he particularly is no, fond I, of. I think and, he's actually referred to it as his least favourite film yeah, that he's yeah. ever made in terms of quality and it's weird i remember reading him say that and being very offended because i liked it a lot at the time and then i watched it again i was like oh no he's right Mm. (laughs) of course he's right it's it's not terrible but it's so heavily flawed and nowhere near as good as i remembered it to be yeah and i had a i think i had the same thing with the goonies as well yeah yeah i feel i still quite like but it's uh it's certainly got issues tonal issues yeah yeah and i actually that there were far more screaming kids in it than i remembered (laughs) yeah a lot of kids talking over each other i'm going what oh fuck turn it down yeah it's not sure it's like just me in my old age but it's just like jesus fuck off kids yeah. i suppose that's you had the same problem as well also, with 1941 <laughs> it doesn't help with that film when they keep calling about what the thing one-eyed willy the thing they want to get to is one-eyed willy and it's just like <laughs> jesus fuck. yeah this film's um it's a lot more consistent than any yeah. of those films and has a has a clearer message as well yeah i mean those films are fun but what are they about no yeah, yeah. This has much more going for it than those films. And I think as, this film will whole. stand as like a time capsule because it captures the way in which people were for a short 
period in history like the way people reacted to a certain event it's almost like it, it just accurately captures that event yeah and translates it almost perfectly Definitely. into a sci-fi setting and it does have flaws and it is shaky in places and there are things that you'll probably think of that can tear it down and send these tripods crashing down but i think it, this is a very underrated very strong spielberg film yeah and that's all we have time for on this week's episode of best forgotten movies be sure to like share and subscribe you can also find us on facebook and twitter at before movies so please do get in touch with suggestions for possible episodes also, if you have the time to help us continue to grow our fan base, please rate and subscribe to our podcast page found in the iTunes store. Join us next week as we watch the man who put the shat in William Shatner direct himself into mediocrity in Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. But until then, it's bye from myself and oola from Andy. Uh... <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs>